This is the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 31. I'm your host, Dill, and our guest today is New York Times bestselling author and renowned music journalist, Gavin Edwards. Gavin is a longtime contributor to Rolling Stone, Details, Billboard, and GQ, who's covered a wide variety of artists, including Nirvana, Blink-182, Taylor Swift, and Weezer, just to name a few. He's turned misheard lyrics into a cottage industry with his book, Excuse Me While I Kiss This Guy, and its follow-ups, and is about to have a busy fall with two new books hitting the shelves. We met up between dropping off our kids at summer camp, and our conversation went along these lines. Now, was that a goal of yours um, coming up as a writer? Was Rolling Stone one of your goals as a kid or a I don't think teenager? Rolling, I, um, I loved music and music writing, uh, but like when I was growing up, it was actually I was more into spin, and uh, so that was uh, like exciting to me. But it was really just you know like being it all seemed so like impossibly remote and. You know, sort of like, how does this happen? Uh, and just, you know, like getting to write about it anywhere. You know, like if you had said that I'd get to, you know, sort of like write a capsule record review and like good housekeeping right underneath, right. you know, sort of like recipe tips, there, I'm, I'm in it. Now I, I want that. What was your first big break in, in kind of the music scene or music publishing? The first, uh, well, I had a, a summer internship at Spin in the summer of uh, 1989 when that was really a thing. And then uh, sort of like the first professional assignment came out of that after it was over. Um, and it was, uh, do you remember the band Bad English? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, a, a, a super group feels like it overdignifies what they were doing. <laughs> but it was uh, John Waite of Missing You fame on uh, vocals. And it was a couple of guys uh, from Journey, including uh, Neil Sean, the guitarist. And they had a uh, number one single, When I See You Smile. And uh, I was, you know, like a senior in college and, uh, you know, I got the call, hey, would you want to write 300 words about these guys? Yes, I want nothing more than that. <laughs> and, you know, sort of like driving to Connecticut to do the interview and, you know, sort of being escorted backstage. And there's, you know, sort of John Waite, like tying scarves on his body, you know, like and saying, is it two Keith Richards? And I'm thinking, it's not really very Keith Richards, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but I think that's not the thing to say right now. What about what followed that? What was the next big... Um, so I uh, was uh, doing a little bit of that, and then I uh, moved to New York City, and I was uh, proofreading, copy editing at a computer magazine, uh, which was PC Magazine at a point where it was 500 pages an issue. It, like, every like single issue was just, right. like, a brick that you could hit somebody with. And I... Uh, uh, got in touch with the David Keeps, um, who was the music editor of Details magazine, and uh, he liked my letter well enough that he started sending me uh, cassette tapes every month, so I could like do three or four capsule reviews. Okay, and uh, I had only ever spoken with his assistant, and after a few months, I uh, wrote him like another note saying, "Hey, I'm writing you record reviews. Could I write something larger?" And he uh, got in touch, said, would you like to write about industrial music? And I knew nothing about industrial music. And I said, absolutely. And I like, sort of, like, did a crash course in industrial and then it worked out okay. And, uh, but the thing that actually, if I say, okay, here's where like, the career actually started. It was um, uh, then he asked if I wanted to do a profile of uh, Dinosaur Jr., Okay. Um, and only afterwards did I realize this was a case of him not really caring about the band and not really caring about me, so he had nothing to lose. Right. Uh, but I'm like, oh, I've got a big assignment. It's happening. Yeah. And so took the train down to Washington, D.C., 
And uh, Jay Maskus, the uh, leader of yep. uh, Dinosaur Jr., is one of the least communicative guys you're ever going to meet. That, you know, sort of like, I would, we go out to dinner and he's like crushing peanuts on the table as we're talking and just kind of grunting at me. And I'm asking about the lyrics and he's like, oh, I just wrote them at the time. Were you a fan at the time? I liked them a lot. Um, they'd had that great album, uh, Bug, uh, that had come out a couple years before. And yeah. this was uh, Green Mind. Uh, it was like circa 1991. Yeah, I was going to say, they're just starting to gain major traction, I think. It was their first um, uh, major label uh, record. Okay. Uh, they had been on uh, SST and I think Matador, and then they had uh, uh, gone over to Warner Brothers. Okay. Um, and so I did this, um, and you know, sort of the show was great. The interview was kind of miserable and I played it for comedy, uh, which apparently like nobody had ever thought to do before. Like they'd sort of try to like use this, like I've got a glimpse into Jay Maskus' soul. And I'm just like, I'm like, this is funny. This guy wouldn't <laughs> talk to me. And it came out well. And from that, I basically got hired on staff at details. Okay. Um, and that was where I spent most of my nineties, uh, oh, most of the nineties. And, uh, then, uh, I can do this uh, slower if you want, but uh, basically uh, spent the 90s at Details and like the aughts at Rolling Stone. Okay. Um, yeah, I started, I, I looked at a lot of your bylines um, in Rolling Stone, uh-huh. and one of the things, you know, I, I just started, I think this was even on your website, but um, like Blink82, I noticed that uh-huh. you did a profile of them pretty early on when right. they just made it big. And I, I was going to ask the question, you know, have you ever been with a band in the beginning and kept covering them throughout their career, which... I can start to answer that because the more deeper I got into it, that is a, a case where you did cover them so much to a point that you ended up doing Travis Barker's um, the autobiography. Uh, and, we autobiography. Can, and we can talk about that in a second, but the one that actually really comes to mind is, um, if you remember Everclear. Yeah. Uh, yep. um, and I was doing a, a story for details where um, John Leland and the editor-in-chief and I were like driving down the West Coast and we passed through Portland and picked up a cassette of like local bands while we were there and played it. And the one that jumped out was this song by the then unsigned Everclear and said, Oh, this might be something if, uh, you know, like, uh, let's keep an eye on these yeah, guys. Yeah. And like six months later, their debut indie album came out. And so I wrote just like a little blurb on them and then, you know, sort of like went to see the show, got them on the phone, you know, 150 words, 200 words, something like that. And uh, then, you know, sort of the following year was Sparkle and Fade, which was the big breakthrough. And that was the, uh, so that was a case where being there step by step and seeing it get bigger and bigger. Uh, These days with a lot of bands like that, if I sort of, if they're still in the game and I sort of like we cross paths again, like this happened with like Rivers Cuomo of Weezer, uh, where, you know, that was another thing where, you know, I'd sort of like edited something he wrote for the magazine and I'd profiled him. And then 20 years later, you sort of, you run against each other and you take this moment of like, this is weird. <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's weird that we're individually still doing what we were doing 20 years ago. And it's like extra weird that we're like in the room again together. What, what, what do you take away for, uh, you know, something like that? Like for instance, in Blink-182 Blink and again, the show being Rockonomics, the things that jumped out to me was... Yeah. You know, you, I think it, you wrote that, you know, they were touring in vans a year ago. Now they're playing sold-out arenas. Mm-hmm. Travis Barker was saying four years ago he couldn't afford food, right. you know, mm-hmm. for himself. And now he can buy art and fix up old Cadillacs and mm-hmm. actually get a pet because he can feed a pet. Right. Mm-hmm. What, some, what do you notice happens to artists when they do find success? Oh, well, um, you know, I mean, some of them are smarter about it than others. Uh, that, you know, sort of, um, there's a lot of people 
uh, who, you know, sort of like, this is my new uh, lifestyle, you know, sort of like, um, you know, the money is flowing in, you know, here it goes. Um, you know, if you're more on the ball, you say this could be like a weird fluky thing that, you right. know, sort of like comes and goes. Uh, I was actually just writing something about Frankie Valli, who said that when he first started to have success with the Four Seasons, for like two years, he did not like buy like a car he uh, you know sort of like he bought a house eventually but it was like a duplex so he could rent out part of it in case like the career fell apart right yeah because like so many people like i mean my main takeaway from the success i saw was that very few of them you know sort of like stuck around and like had sustained careers that you know like the nature of pop music is you know you've got your moment in the sun it's a rare person who like manages to sustain that across 20 years who are some of your favorites in that era, I guess, um, as you're coming up the 90s and early 2000s? Um, I was, uh, I think of, um, the. Uh, I mean, there's like sort of one-hit wonders I remember fondly, uh, but uh, like the ones that I sort of really hang on to would be sort of like um, the bands like Yola Tengo and Sonic Youth, mm-hmm. uh, where they sort of like had the commitment and... You know, they sort of like had like a rehearsal space, and you know, like maybe it's Lower Manhattan, maybe it's Jersey, but they were were able to do what they did uh, with like relatively like low infrastructure, and then they can just make the music they want to make. Right. And you know, and they were lucky that there were points where what they did coincided with what the public wanted, but it was more important, you know, like uh, to like, hey, we're in this to make art. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about you. I feel like you also had a decent relationship or coverage of Nirvana and Kurt Cobain in particular? So I, um, uh, uh, you know, like uh, from, excuse me, I'll take my ring off. <laughs> uh, from uh, that, uh, um, the Dinosaur Junior article, uh, that led to me getting on staff at Details Magazine. And uh, I uh, was uh, editing like the record review section. I was uh, like uh, commissioning uh, some sort of like articles, and I was also uh, writing one article a month. It was kind of the perfect half writing, half editing job mm-hmm. for a while. And uh, one day, the uh, tape for uh, Nirvana's Nevermind comes in, and it just immediately like I've got an advanced cassette. You know, I know very little about them. I knew they were on Sub Pop, and uh, I'd sort of like heard like some uh, buzz on them, but I had not like uh, been into them before. But I put it in and just immediately pins my ears back. This is something major. Like, wow. (laughs) And I actually, uh, they sent the video for uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. And the day I got it, uh, I go, there's a conference room at Details. And I go and watch it and say, oh my God, this is, like, I've never seen anything like this. And I walk around and I gather all of the younger staffers on the magazine. uh, That, you know, there are some who are sort of like, uh, you know, like in their mid thirties and they feel like old. And at that point right. it's like, Oh my God, you know, like they're not going to get this, but like everyone else who's like sort of like under 24 and gather. And we all just sort of like watch. Wow. And then for the rest of the day, one, every hour on the hour, we reconvened in the conference room to like watch it again and say like, okay, that's like four minutes of excellence. Go back to our jobs. We'll see you in an hour. We'll do this again. That's so funny. Uh, so uh, I said, well, we should uh, write about this. And so I was there just as the like world was getting insane. Uh, so I flew out to Germany. Um, I uh, rode on the tour bus. Uh, I was in uh, Berlin, Hamburg, and Frankfurt. And, uh, you know, sort of like uh, saw these shows and saw them just like, it wasn't fun for them at that point. They were, right. they were mostly just overwhelmed uh, that, you know, they were this like sort of punk rock band that like 
hoped to be moderately successful, but they never imagined they were going to be hitting number one, having, you know, sort of this huge, right. and uh, they were just, you know, like couldn't believe what had happened to them. And every day their uh, road manager would, you know, sort of like uh, tape up uh, the, uh, like media requests uh, from like, our, the, all right, here's like what the German uh, the record label would like you to do today. And it's like, do them if you want, don't do it if you don't want. Right. And they just wouldn't do it. They sure. were, uh, they were, it was just all too much for them. <laughs> um, yeah. Again, part of the articles that I read, it's, you know, Kurt and Dave shared an unheated apartment and split mm-hmm. hot dogs and mac and cheese. And uh, Chris was basically living in poverty and now he owns two homes. What was, what kind of, I mean, we all know, unfortunately, how it how it ends. But in the in the few years that you covered them, again, what do you observe? How how sure. they so lived saw, or handled things? So I saw some of the before and after there. Um, so uh, like I saw that part of it and them talking about that, and then I uh, you know sort of fast forward a couple of years, and it, in utero was coming out, and I do a cover story on them for details, and so at that point. You know, sort of like I go and uh, Chris has a much nicer home in Seattle. And he's talking about uh, that he's, you know, sort of like bought like another like house out in the woods. And, you know, like there's a guy who's going to like knock down, uh, like do some development uh, and like knock down nearby forests. And he had gotten smart enough to say, you know, like if I oppose this ideologically, like, hey, what are you doing to the, uh, the forests? I'm not going to win. But if I say... Hey, I'm a homeowner. I'm concerned about my property values, right. and so they actually like bought a tract of land just to like keep it undeveloped. So they could quickly they quickly learned how they could play the game and uh, do things like that. That's interesting. There was a um, fax that um, Kurt had sent Chris that he had like taped up in his garage, and it was one of those um, you know sort of like come ons from the publisher uh, clearing the publisher's ha- clearing house, <laughs> and it was Kurt Cobain. You may have already won ten million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, also, I mean, not to get dark, but coming out of that, like I said, we all know how that tragically unfolded, but a lot of who you've covered before, it's, you know, Avicii, you, you did some, mm-hmm. uh, a number of articles on, uh, Chris Cornell, I know you covered a few things on him. What well, you know, do you draw a conclusion to just, is it just... I mean, there was a point where I said, I just can't write about, like, heroin users anymore, um, uh, because I'd... Um, uh, Everclear, who I mentioned, uh, and um, Depeche Mode, Dave Gahan, uh, had uh, a really bad habit, Kurt, obviously, and it felt like there's just this parade of, um, you know, sort of, like, everyone, uh, you know, like, had this, like, affliction, and, like, I don't know that I have anything new to say about it at a certain point, right. uh, and it's not financially based. It's just, you know, like, some people, like, have an addiction, and then there's a lot of people around them catering to them and trying even if they're not necessarily saying like hey here's your like dime bag you right. know, sort of go do the show the strong incentive is to get people in a point where they're able to perform not necessarily to like let's take a year or two and get you well before we go do this other thing mm-hmm. is it just a bad rock cliche like that they're even going down that road in the first place like i'm a rock star you know sex drugs rock and roll i gotta keep keep up with it or is it just kind of the artist in individuals that kind of get them to explore, I don't know, explore the space of their mind or... 
Yeah, I think it's a mix that, you know, sort of like the damage that Kurt Cobain had that made him a great artist was also the damage that, you know, sort of made life painful for him and that he found a way to like self-medicate for. Um, I think, uh, you know, in some cases it's, oh, my heroes have done this. Let me try it. And, you know, sort of like what's the worst that can happen? Uh, like, again, with Kurt Cobain, that, you know, because he was a big admirer of William S. Burroughs, um, uh, that, you know, sort of like, so it seemed... Like, you know, sort of like the glamorous approach as opposed to going into a doctor and saying, I've got really bad stomach pain. What can you do for me? Right, right. Um, and then, you know, sort of as people get older, they find it's a thing that, like, they can't shake. Uh, that, um, that, you know, I sort of didn't do Scott Wheeland at the time specifically because I didn't want, like, any part of that. Um, but then, you know, sort of years later talking with him about it. And it just... You know, his life was a mess because of it. You know, he spent it, like, in and out of rehab, and, you know, he was arrested, he lost his family. It was not a boon in his life. Uh, so, um, it feels like there are more people in the music industry that this is true of, and it's also true that we're more aware of them, that, you know, sort of, like, you know, you don't know about all the people in the kitchen staff uh, right. or, like, have really bad uh, addiction problems because they're on the cover of magazines. Right. Well, speaking of Scott, I know you did a, you know, this is back in 04, but Velvet Revolver, mm -hmm. you did that. Were you optimistic at that point, or did you have a point of view of, like, this guy's doomed, or, you know, let's, uh, I hope for the best for him, or? It seemed like that was an optimistic story, um, uh, that, because it was him and it was a bunch of Guns N' Roses, and they all had sort of like, it felt like they'd all come out on the other side. Mm -hmm. um, they you know, sort of spoke with like Duff McKagan, who had also had just like horrendous drug problems. And like, he had the story about his pancreas almost exploded. <laughs> uh, and, you know, sort of like, you know, people like, you know, being carted off to the hospital and thrusting like money at people, buy beer while I'm gone. And, uh, but he was just like this, the wholesome, smart, together guy, like, which you don't necessarily expect the basis for Guns N' Roses to be. Right. But, like, I actually found him kind of admirable. Right. And so that was the atmosphere around the whole thing. And, you know, sort of Scott is like, okay, I'm in this, like, halfway house, and this is what I have to do to get better. And, you know, like, I'm doing that, you know, sort of like I want to be with, like, my wife and kid. So... You know, like if you put a gun to my head and at that moment and said, is he going to make it? I probably would have said yes, but I, I didn't actually know. But the feeling is like, okay, they're in the right mental space. Right. right. Well, it's interesting because, yeah, um, Scott did say of Duff, like he's a great father, loving husband. And I like the way he handles his finances. Okay. Like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it becomes a thing that you see, um, you know, like... People don't always want to talk about it, and part of it's like a sense of privacy, and part of it is like the fear that it's going to be boring. Um, that you know, sort of like I edited um, the Moby's memoirs, um, and uh, you know, sort of like I met with him. He wrote the book, but I would uh, meet with him uh, periodically and sort of like give him feedback, and then you know, he'd sort of go away and rewrite, and we'd go over chapters and mm -hmm. so on. And uh, there was a point um, he was reasonably forthcoming about like sort of what was going on in his life financially um but you know he just sort of like didn't want to bore the readers and like sure. one of the things was like you know every rock book falls apart when they start talking about the lawsuits yeah yeah uh, which is always bound up with the uh, the finances because there's a guy uh, like someone's stealing from them right there's a manager who's stealing from them or there's a really bad deal they signed with a record label and he's like you know it's all true and it's all really important to these people but readers don't actually care mm -hmm. so um, all right. Well, I'll, 
move, moving on from that, it's, it's funny mm-hmm. when you talk about Jay Mazik's, I, was, I, I pointed out what I think are probably good interviews going in. Like, you, you know you're going to get stuff. You yeah. get good stuff. And um, some of the things I saw was, uh, you know, uh, the Gallagher brothers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of money, Gene Simmons is never shy to say how you know, rich he is and uh, Steven yeah. Tyler. So when you go into something like, is that a, do you approach something like that, like, this should be easy, or these are... Right, know. and uh, the main thing you want with somebody like Steven Tyler is not to get into, you know, he's going to be a good interview. Like, uh, he's spent his life being a good interview. Um, make sure that he's not repeating, like, the regular shtick. Yeah, uh, yeah. So a lot of what I do, um, I spent, it, it, this may be almost, like, superstitious at this point, but a lot of my thought goes into what's the first question. Yeah. Uh, th- that it's got to be something that's sort of, like, on point, that's penetrating, that shows I've, like, uh, you know, I know the work, and, uh, and it's not, um, uh, and it's going to let the people know they can't do this interview on autopilot. Oh, I've done, you know, sort of eight interviews in a row where they ask me the same, the same five questions. Mm-hmm. This one's going to be different. And then even if at the end you have to circle around and ask those five questions, you get a different right. answer because uh, you were sort of more... I remember, uh, actually, and it was a lesson I learned really early with Kurt Cobain, where, uh, and I hadn't put that much thought into it at that point, but just the, my first question for him was, is Sliver a true story? Which is a song at the time uh, was only out on like a sub-pop single, um, and it's the one that goes, Grandma, take me home. Grandma, take me home. And it's all about being a kid and being dropped off with your grandparents and like being really unhappy that mom and dad have abandoned you. Mm-hmm. And the, like, you know, he sort of perked up a little bit and like gave me an answer. Like, oh, well, it's more that it happened to my sister and so on. It wasn't the greatest answer, right. but I realized later watching him do other interviews where every single question was, tell me what smells like teen spirit means. Yeah. That, you know, sort of like, and you could just see the light in his eyes dial down of here we go again. <laughs> and so, you know, it gets you, if you can wake people up and make them think like they're actually playing tennis, that, you know, sort of they're going to be engaged, right. then you can get much better stuff. Um, are you team Noel or team Liam? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh I guess I was uh, uh, Team Noel. Um, the funny thing is, like Liam's been giving better interviews lately. Um, uh, that at the time, like I used to say, he was like possibly the stupidest person I ever interviewed. That like, <laughs> and, and so dumb that it was entertaining. It's right. like you know, put a microphone towards a brick of wo- a block of wood and see what it says. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if you've seen online that you know, like sort of him uh, like backstage saying, "Oh, here I am. I have to make my own cup of tea." Back in the day, we'd have three people who would do this for me. That it's almost as if he's like trying to compete with his brother on interviews now as right. well, because yeah. every single thing they do is competitive. <laughs> <laughs> do you have opinion uh, between the uh, two of them? I I don't. I, I I generally confuse the two, which I'm sure oh. a lot of people do. But I think Noel does. He does have a sharper mm-hmm. a sharper wit. Yeah, and just you know, it's funny that he says that Liam is dumb as a brick, and that's how he always gets his goat. And so I would have to say Team Noel. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> looking back, I can see that um, at least some of Liam being dumb as a brick is probably like how he like a defensive mechanism of I'm never going to compete with my brother, so if I'm just the idiot, you know, sort of no one can blame me for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's go back into uh, more of your personal stories. What would you say was your hardest interview? Oh. Or maybe most memorable interview? Okay, so the hardest interviews are not the memorable ones um, because uh, uh, that's where you uh, you know talk with somebody who's sort of like nice but just dull. Like uh, 
uh, Mooney Love, um, the British rapper, and she was sweet and just, uh, but you're getting like sort of like uh, nothing exceptional the whole time. You're right. like, wow, where is this going? Uh, um, and that's actually a story that ended up not running. Sometimes you say, you know, I went out and spent a day with this person and I'd like for there to be more, but there isn't. <laughs> um, the stories I remember best are the ones where, um, you know, sort of like, uh, you go out and like uh, there was some sort of like adventure connected to it uh, that, um, you know, sort of like uh, with Blink-182, uh, later on they were uh, playing in the Middle East. Right. And so, you know, I sort of like flew out to like Bahrain and onto an aircraft carrier in the Gulf of Oman with them. And that was, that was crazy. They, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, sort of being on military planes uh, that, you know, get sort of catapulted off the aircraft carrier um, you know, sort of seeing like sort of these soldiers gathered on the deck of the uh, uh, carrier, and also like sort of some people. It was in the the uh, sailors' gym, uh, and so at the back there were people on their exercise bicycles. You know, sort of like as Blink One Eighty Two are playing a gig. Um, you know, and they're just like, all right, you know, there's a band here, and I'm but I'm still getting in my like sixty minutes of cardio. <laughs> uh, I remember uh, just sort of like. A lot of traveling with people that uh, you know, sort of um, uh, late at night with uh, Scott Wheeland um, and and a very cold tour bus. It must have been you know, sort of like fifteen degrees outside, um, and everyone else in the band has gone to bed and just like uh, talking with him about you know, sort of snow days when he was a kid and like it was his favorite thing ever because it meant he could play Dungeons and Dragons all day long. <laughs> and you can see this guy who had you know this sort of like rock star armor. It just sort of like. Right. falls away and you, uh, you see like oh here's the uh, like it's not that long since he was like a geeky adolescent who loved D&D and you know sort of like loved music and was like a little too creative and didn't really fit in and you know like and here he is now with this like strange right. life very revealing moments do you have ever had these moments that you can't publish or does it they ever get retracted or the publicist says you know I've had occasionally push back later on but for the most part um the best advice I ever uh, got on that was when someone says, can I tell you something off the record? Say no. <laughs> uh, and, you know, sort of like if you've got something, because it's not going to do me any good, find a way of talking about it um, right. uh, where you're comfortable talking about it in uh, public. Right. A little train. Oh, apparently. It's subway. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also noticed on your site you had a couple of notations where things are unpublished. Uh-huh. What and you mentioned you know you had a boring interview with that one rapper. What what else holds something back from being unpublished? Um, uh, so one that comes to mind um, uh, was the darkness, um, uh, who uh, were you know sort of like flew out to England and they were great, they're entertaining, and um, I handed in uh, the story. This was a Rolling Stone piece, and it could have either run. Um, sort of the week before the album came out or the week after the album came out. And they pushed it back to the second one, and then the album came out and flopped. Um, and so the magazine all of a sudden was like, eh, maybe we don't want to put three pages on this, like, flop. You see things like that happen sometimes. Or, and uh, that was a very stark, you know, sort of like, we thought this album was going to be a big deal. It's not. Uh, we're giving you the ads. Sometimes it's just, uh, you know, sort of, we had, you know, sort of like an ad page fall out the last second. We thought we had room for this article and we didn't. And then, you know, sort of the issue after that was a special issue and it doesn't fit in. Right. Um, and sometimes you really have to like fight for the space like that. Um, I did a piece on Stephen Colbert when he was starting the Colbert Report, like his uh, uh, first show. 
and you know I sort of got crazy access. I you know sort of followed him around uh, like backstage for a couple of days as he was putting the show together. I sat with a lot of people who were working on it. I was there at the, um, the first um, time he ever did like a read through with his staff. It was, it was a day where they said, "Let's do a sample, sh- uh, a test show, basically. Oh, wow. we're, we're not going to get the graphics up, and we'll end up he'll re- perform it in like the office of his head writer." But it was the same. How would we have approached today if it was an actual show? So he's doing it, and you know he's sort of talking to the staff a little bit beforehand. And he says, "And in that corner over there, that's Gavin." He's here from the NEA to see if we get funding, so please, somebody be black. <laughs> so, but the point of this story is that, um, you know, I had all this amazing material, and it was the same issue that Jan Wenner had um, done the sort of definitive uh, interview with uh, Bono. Like, uh, he sort of got the cover, and he got, I think, like 17 pages in the magazine. And I we had to fight really hard. It's like, look, it's great that you've got you know, 18 hours of interview with Bono and that turned out so well, but you've got to give me like at least two pages because this is a big deal too. And so the feature well of the magazine was Bono, 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 Stephen Colbert. <laughs> Has there been a time, I mean, are you disappointed at time? Have you ever been, you know, severely disappointed when something's got cut of yours? Earlier on. Uh, I mean, and then at a certain point you just sort of like accept, it. Uh, you know, it's showbiz. Uh, sometimes it happens and sometimes... The, I mean, and there's one uh, stories where you really wish, like, oh, it was good. There was no reason for it to get cut. Like, I did what would have been the first big feature for Rolling Stone on Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was um, for, you know, sort of like a special issue. And she was not quite a big enough deal for them. And I just knew she was going to get bigger and bigger. And let's get on this. And uh, just, you know, they ran it online. And sometimes you just have to say, you know, you're not in charge. And sometimes things happen that are like a gift in the same way. They, you know, like I would wander into the Rolling Stone office and they'd say, hey, can you get on a plane tomorrow? You know, like we had an extra page and we need, you know, you do sort of go down to Miami and uh, talk to Lenny Kravitz or we need you to go to Indiana and talk to John Mellencamp. And so you figure if you're in a long-term relationship with a magazine, sometimes things will turn out better than you hoped for and sometimes uh, you you didn't get that one. Um, Mentioning Mellencamp, um, isn't he typically ornery to impress <laughs> he is there was a point uh where i asked him uh you know sort of like um i got into the magazine the phrase the red ass which i had learned from uh, do you remember jim bouton's book ball four uh it's vaguely familiar um it was the first big baseball tell-all um and uh, there was a point where he was talking like sort of like he just sort of said lou Pinella has the red ass like he was like sort of like a rookie outfielder at that point he was just kind of like irate and pugnacious about everything it was a phrase that always stuck with me and so you know i asked mellencamp you know like people say you have the red ass <laughs> and you know he was like kind of charmed by the phrase and worked it into his own kind of, and once it was in his quote then like it had to be in the story uh, so um he was somebody who like doesn't suffer fools gladly. And I see this happen all the time that people who you just like have the fearsome reputation, but if you come in and you're not an idiot, there's a point where they decide, okay, you're not an idiot. Like right. Trent Reznor was the same way uh, that you know he's somebody who has been can be totally withering, and he decided I was all right. And then you know sort of I don't know exactly why. You know like did I make him laugh? Did I you know sort of show that I was paying attention? But you know if it goes well, then people like that the defense mechanisms they've built up to get rid of like sort of the people around them right. who, who they feel like are wasting their time you can still like be invited inside right and with trent you've actually covered him a number of times also right right they interviewed him does he times. go back to even your first article the industrial music 
I wrote about him there, and um, I wrote a short piece for him uh, uh, in uh, details. And actually, that was a piece where um, you asked earlier, like, do you ever get pushback? And there was a publicist who said, oh, I don't think he would have said that. I'm like, I got it in my notes. (laughs) I didn't have it on tape? I did not have it on tape. And it was actually an early lesson of even for small things, like... uh, keep it on the take notes and have it on tape just so you have the backup in case that ever happens again. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody else who you've gone into it just intimidated as hell or nervous as hell? Much earlier on after a while, like, um, you know, at first, you know, people uh, who've seen uh, uh, almost famous um, uh, often, you know, like, is that what it's like? And it's not what it's like anymore that, you know, sort of, you don't sort of like get on the bus and just like ride with the the band across yeah. the country for a month. Uh, like, you know, you could do things like that in 1972 and it was much more controlled uh, when I started doing things in the nineties. I think these days it barely happens at all uh, that nobody wants to sort of like pay for like sort of the time or uh, the expenses that go along with uh, like a sustained piece of reporting like that. The I'm sorry, the magazine in the, terms uh, of the, the expense? Uh, right. Uh, and that, you know, sort of, uh, you know, if it's a cover story, it's one thing. Um, but now you see a lot more just like, well, can you do this in a half hour on the phone? Right, right. Uh, and then, you know, sort of like the, the artists have become geared to that as well. It used to be consistent. Like, this is the way we do it. You know, we sort of like we do full on yeah. reporting. But uh, so even though that doesn't happen anymore, what that movie got exactly right is at the beginning uh, of, when you haven't done it before, there's, is the band going to talk to me? And of course they're going to talk to you. You're there from the magazine. They want the publicity. <laughs> but when you're a kid, you know, sort of that's not, you're worried that you're going to screw it up somehow and it's not going to go well. Uh, and I always have like a tiny bit of that even today that, you know, sort of like, I'm uh, getting Neil Tennant on the phone. I did something because uh, they did this Pet Shop Boy, uh, Pet Shop Boys ballet here in town, and I wrote about it for the New York Times. And oh my God, Neil Tennant! I love Neil Tennant. I want it to go well, and I've just sort of learned to compartmentalize it. That you know, like I have this feeling. It doesn't really mean anything. You know, it's just sort of like normal human anxiety. So put it on the side and go ahead and do your job. And three minutes in, everything's going great. You don't have to think about it. Well, I mean, you touched upon something that's interesting that, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to an artist, I mention, you know, if their career spans across the Napster iTunes era. Right. But it it also affected publishing so much, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, magazine publishing, like like you said, I mean, what have you, where do you kind of see the future of of what you do or what you did do? So it's really different um, that, that, you know, sort of the web came along and was... uh, in a parallel to what went on in the music industry it was greeted initially by sort of fascination, but like lack of comprehension. And then at a certain point, everyone realized that it was like, you know, sort of kicking their ass and taking their lunch money. Um, and I saw a lot of places where, you know, sort of like the web operation, and the paper operation were kept separate for a long time. And I think everyone's basically emerged. Right. Um, and um, uh, paper magazines, some of them just aren't ever going to be what they were before. Uh, like anything where there's a easier like version of it online, like, like gossip magazines, especially, right. You know, sort of like you can see like us magazine, you know, like subsisted on, you know, like here's, you know, sort of like the hot photos from this week and everyone's already seen them all online. Can't wait a week anymore. Right. I actually used to, 
really resent um, when I was at Details. It was a monthly magazine, and I would get some like hot little bit of music news, and like I knew nobody else had it, and I would get in the magazine. And because of the production cycle, like, well, the magazine's not going to close for like another like three weeks, and then like we send it off to the printers, and then it doesn't hit newsstands for like maybe another three weeks after that, and here it is. And in those uh, six weeks, you know, sort of like Rolling Stone would publish three times, mm-hmm. so like it would, I would end up getting scooped, even though I'm like, I had that first, and I had no way of getting it out there. So. It's gratifying uh, to be able to get things out faster. That I did a lot of work for a while for the Rolling Stone website where, you know, I would sort of like go to Coachella and you get it up the next day. And mm-hmm. like, here it is. Or, you know, you, were, uh, you see a secret show by uh, Nine Inch Nails at like a club in Hollywood. And, you know, sort of like I would go to it. I would stay up that night and write it up. And like it would be up on like the Internet at 6.30 a.m. Eastern time and just like th- very immediate I did this, I saw it, I wrote it, there it is. Right. That's exciting. But it really kicked the economics of uh, the magazine business in the teeth. Uh, so um, it's uh, just like you could see that magazines get thinner and thinner oh, and yeah. thinner. Um, and so there's, you know, accordingly less and It's not even as much that they pay less. Uh, it's that a lot of things that once would have been in the magazine are shifted over uh, to the website. Okay. So the magazine itself may be paying roughly what it once did, but there's a lot less of it there. Uh, and so there's fewer assignments and there's less to be done. And you have stories online that could be like 10% of what it once was. And at that point, like I'm doing it for love rather than I can make a living off it. Mm-hmm. Um, not to, I mean, I'm jumping around, but yeah. uh, you just, I'm here. Yeah. I'll jump with you. Okay. <laughs> Um, going online, yeah. looking at your bylines, uh, you seem to be the list guy at, at, uh-huh. at a certain, you know, in a certain way. Right. Um, how does that, how did that come to be? Or is that something I'm, I'm assuming you enjoy that? Sure. I mean, that's something, um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you probably found a bunch of stuff I did for, uh, like, uh, Rolling Stone where yeah. it's, you know, sort of like, uh, here's, uh, you know, sort of one that was a weirdly big hit was like 20, um, uh, song, 20 hit songs, uh, of bands, not by their usual uh, lead singer, which felt like just like a really like simple, <laughs> obvious uh, thing. And I think I had like 13 originally in the editors. Like you just got make it a round number. It'll do better. And so I did. And just, you know, like for whatever reason, like everyone wanted to see that that week. That's so funny. Yeah. Did, uh, you, did you pitch that idea? That I did. I mean, that was a point where I was doing literally like 10 things a month for the Rolling Stone website. And so I would just sort of like try to do a little bit of everything. Like I, I would do, they would have like flashback videos of, hey, you know, here's this old like sort of like clash performance, you know, just sort of like point people towards it and write it. Here's, uh, you know, sort of like the, a list I had. Here's like a short interview I did. Here, like, here's like a review. I did something where the one that turned out to be the most work um, was unexpectedly um, uh, was doing the 100 best albums Rolling Stone loved in the 100 albums Rolling Stone loved in the 1970s that you've never heard of. <laughs> So it meant going through the record review sections from the 1970s and like I could skip over anything that you'd heard of right. and just like looking at the rest and saying like, oh, here's a rave for, you know, sort of like Judy Sill or Fanny or like all these people who are just sort of like, you know, forgotten to history now right. and uh, saying like, okay, but somebody in 1972 thought this was the album of the year and it never really happened for them, but here it is. Right. 
What about something like I I, I didn't click on it just because yeah. I didn't have the time, but it was um I think it was like twenty five years since the um, We Are the World recording. That was fun. That was um and that was something I. Um, I did three of them, and um, I loved um, doing that. One of them was um, so there were minute by minute breakdowns or second by second. So like watching like the We Are the World uh, um, and saying, okay, you probably know the basic story of the session, um, but um, I'd found out the thing that was the cornerstone of it. I had read Quincy Jones' um, autobiography, and there was information that I had never known, including the fact that the duet between Bruce Springsteen and Stevie Wonder at the end was completely patched together in the studio the next day. That, like, he sort of, like, he, you know, he has the recording session and he listens and he's like, well, the song's good, like, a couple times through the chorus and then like, kind of, like, loses the energy and what am I going to do? And he had, like, the Bruce recording uh, he, uh, and he said, he called Stevie back into the studio and said, hey, could you call and response to this? And, like, that, uh, like, sort of, like, was a full minute of the single and it's the part that like gives you goosebumps right that's amazing yeah so i did that and uh the first one i'd actually done that was like that was uh u2 performing bad at live aid mm -hmm. um uh, because i said like okay you know sort of like i i saw it when it happened it's this 12 minute performance you know like what actually happened what was the story behind it and discovering that there was just lots and lots of like information of you know, like an interview with a girl that he pulled up on stage and, you know, sort of like the roadie who helped them ended up dying a year later and just like breaking down, you know, sort of like here's what you can see 38 seconds in, here's what you can see like at 115 and just like doing that. And I also did one for uh, the Beatles, All You Need Is Love. And it was this very this narrow area of incredibly famous things caught on video that the whole world saw that there had been like lots of information on in the following decades that I could then synthesize into right. a narrative. And so I loved doing it, but it was like sort of in the Venn diagram of things that made it work. <laughs> you had to have just like sort of like it was a very small subcategory. Right. Now, do you guys have a healthy competition when it comes to clicks? You know, that certain things are working and certain things aren't? I would find out things. Uh, so um, I never... Uh, I know there are places where, like, sort of anyone who's on staff, you know, you know exactly how many clicks you're getting at any minute. Like, people would talk, like, sort of, you know, like, if you're at Gawker when it was a thing and you're responsible for filing, like, sort of eight pieces a day, you're getting, like, instant feedback on, you know, like, this is the one that people responded to. And maybe the thing that you spent a week working on gets nothing. And the thing that was just, like, a quick rewrite of, uh, you know, sort of, like, some new story ends up being, like, the big hit of the day. Right. Um I would find out in sort of broad strokes. If something was like, uh, I got, I think, weekly reports on what was particularly big, so I would know when something took off. And I would ask sometimes, oh, oh did this work? Did it not? There was uh, the one most craven thing I ever did. I'm like, this is going to break the internet. <laughs> was I did a sort of top ten like rock stars pets. Uh, and it was, you know, like Taylor Swift's cats and here's like the dog that Eric Clapton had. And like, I'm like, people are going to go into like, people love pets, sure, you know, sure. like, and pets and celebrities. Yeah. And for whatever reason, they were eh, not so much. So that's funny. I was going to say in a negative way, was, was it ever brought to you? Like, you know, when they're using data and analytics to be, you've got to, it's got to be more like this or your headlines got to be more like this to get, you know, to get the clicks. I um, was thankfully was mostly insulated from that uh, when I was most active. Uh, but I hear about some of the things that would go on. And um, the two things I would say is uh, like uh, one is uh, that 
um, you know, advertising uh, will push as for encroach as much as they can. If you don't have an editor who's saying no, you know, like you now sh- uh, not shall go past this, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, Levi's wants to sponsor something, but they want it to be themed to their new campaign. You know, sort of, can't we give it this extra? Right. And you need like actually like a strong editor who's going to say no. You know, like they need to give us the money and we'll give them something that will be good, but is not right. you know, sort of like themed to that. And the other thing I learned is just that every single like little thing can be measured and is uh, that uh, the one that stuck with me is that um, typefaces with serifs apparently don't do as well as typefaces without serifs uh, online. I, I can see that. <laughs> um, and but Rolling Stone has like been an ongoing argument because you know sort of the magazine's typeface right. is like a serif typeface, and so if you put up something sans serif on the web. Uh, you know, sort of, you may get more clicks, but does it feel less Rolling Stone? And at that point, it's really just sort of like a philosophical of how much do you value the look of the magazine versus, you know, like X percent more people like clicking on what you're doing. Right. That's interesting. I mean, it's definitely the, like the Fred Woodward era mm-hmm. is gone. I yeah. feel. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I mean, the, you know, the magazine used to be the way each article had its own tone and, you know, personality was great. You know, not to criticize. I'm a, I'm a huge Rolling Stone fan, if you can't tell. But, <laughs> um, anyways, I uh, I wrap up each show with the same five questions that everybody gets. <laughs> so, but well, there you go. But you saved them for the end. Let me give you the final five. Hit me, Tim. Okay, uh, number one is your house is on fire. What music related artifact or tchotchke or memorabilia do you go save? Um, I have. Uh, I have a bunch of gold records, um, and uh, a couple of them are really random. Uh, uh, they, you know, got one kind of undeservedly from like Dr. Dre and Snoop, but the one that actually means something to me is uh, the gold record for Everclear because I like went on tour with them, and I had it. so if I have to grab one thing, that's the thing. Cool. I got a question because what, how do you get a gold? Do they gift gift that to you? Yes. Okay. So, so that's that, just a so uh, sorry uh, so. Talking about gold records, um, I can tell you that um, Kurt Cobain once busted open one of his own gold records <laughs> because he wanted to see, you know, like, is it my? Because like it didn't look like a Nirvana album, and in fact, it was a classical record that had just been gilded. That's awesome. Uh, but basically, you have a big hit album, and they say, "All right, who do you want to give gold records to?" Um, and you know, you need to give it to management. You're going to need to send some to important radio stations and MTV and the guy who engineered it. And it's all coming out of the band's royalties. Right. And sometimes they'll sort of say. Hey, you know, sort of like let's give uh, some to like some important people in the press. Uh, and there was one, the one that was actually the most random was this rap duo Black Sheep, and I had included them in a uh, like hip hop roundup uh, report card, and I had given them a B plus. And like, and I got a gold record. Like, I don't feel like I deserve this. It wasn't even a really good grade. And every now and then, you'll get one from a band where you say, like, "Oh, it was because we actually kind of like had a, like a moment together." And okay, nice. makes perfect sense. I uh, had another, you know, um, personality that you know is not a recording artist, and they mm-hmm. they had a number of gold records. I'm like, how the hell do you have gold records? But, right. Yeah, to your the, point. The, the, there's, there's just a big list, and it's how much do you want to spend on this, and do you want to send it out? And some people uh, are looser with it than others. Yeah. And uh, for some people, it's like it's all abstract money against royalties that right. you know, like who knows if you're ever going to get the check anyway. <laughs> Buy people with some gold records. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> okay, question two: uh, If I was at liberty, if Rockonomics was at liberty to cut you a check for a million dollars to give to one charity, whose charity would get it? Um, uh, the American Refugee Committee. Um, uh, which is 
Um, that's something that I've uh, been trying to direct attention to uh, recently. I've got a book coming out called uh, uh, The Beautiful Book of Exquisite Corpses, and there's a uh, hundred different contributors to it. And I actually had to uh, confront that I was paid everybody the same amount. Um, but for some people, like, you know, uh, which was a hundred bucks. And uh, for some people, that was like a life-changing, oh my God, I've never gotten paid for my art before. And some people were millionaires where I knew I was going to have trouble getting them to accept the check. <laughs> and so I said, the option is, if you don't want the money, uh, you can just like uh, give it, uh, you know, like donate. And uh, I sort of feel like it's really shameful what's going on, that we're turning our back in the world and there are so many people like in need and even if I cannot, you know, sort of single-handedly drag them into the country, uh, I can, you know, say, like, let's do what we can to make their circumstances a little better. So. Okay, great. Let's talk a little bit about that book. I, I have this, my, that's my last note. I was going to uh, give you a chance to, to plug it. So this is something that's come out in August. Right. And it's an interesting kind of, what is it? Okay, so I've got two books coming out this fall. Uh, uh, one of them is in October, and that's uh, The World According to Tom Hanks. The one that's coming out first is... There is this drawing game uh, that you may have played when you were a kid where you fold a piece of paper in three and somebody does uh, the top part of the drawing and then you fold it so the next person can't see it but they continue it in the middle and then you fold it again and the final person uh, does the bottom part and then you unfold it and you say, my God, what have we made together? What have we unleashed on the world? And sometimes it's brilliant and sometimes it's awful uh, but you sort of tap into this like sort of collaborative vibe. Um, I said, you could do this but get... Um, uh, somebody to uh, pre-start it. So, uh, like, the essence of the book is it's got perforated pages, and you sort of tear out a page, and there's already a panel there from Moby, or Grace Slick, or, like, Robbie Krieger from The Doors, or a tattoo artist you've never heard of, or, uh, you know, sort of, like, novelists, and so, uh, like, and so you've got uh, people, some of them famous, some of them not, uh, but you uh, do it, and then, like, you sort of fold it, and you do part of it, and your friend does part of it, and you have this collaborative vibe, and you also find that you've done this long-distance collaboration. Oh, that's very cool. Is there going to be an on online component, too, so you can kind of you know, no, share no. with... Uh, what I'm hoping will happen is that, if you like it, that uh, so, uh, you know, like, and at the back, there's little biographies of everybody. So let's say you do this, and you say, wow, this came out great, and it's uh, with, uh, you know, sort of like a cartoonist, uh, Peter Cooper, um, uh, who I don't know, but like, wow, he seems really cool. Then you know, sort of like you know, take a picture, send it to him on Twitter, and like that, like it'll be circulating out there, and people can sort of like see. You know, it's fun for the artists that like they did this panel, yeah. uh, you know, sort of a year ago, and now you know, sort of coming up in a couple of months, they're going to sort of like find that they've got you know dozens, maybe hundreds of collaborators who are sort of like interacting with what they've done. Yeah, that's great. That's very cool. What about uh, the world according? To, is it the world according to Tom Hanks? The world according to Tom Hanks, and uh, that is um, follow up to a. Uh, book I did uh, last year, year before, um, uh, which was uh, The Tao of Bill Murray. Um, and it's uh, taking uh, uh, Tom Hanks and uh, saying, you know, sort of like what everyone knows about him is he's an incredibly nice guy. Uh, but, you know, sort of, uh, but that's sort of, in some ways, that's kind of like the end of the conversation for a lot of people. Oh, he's a nice guy. And treating that as the beginning of the conversation. Like, okay, well, what does that mean? You know, sort of, what's his mental landscape? What does he care about? What is he passionate about? How does... You know, like, because he's not dull or bland or uh, uninteresting. So what animates him? Um, and so uh, it's a book uh, where, you know, the core of it is, like, talking about his obsessions and, you know, sort of, like, how Tom Hanks became who Tom Hanks is. It's most, stupid question, is yeah. most of that, are you um, 
speaking to him or are you speaking to people around him? Um, in this case, it's speaking to people around him. I uh, uh, corresponded with him. He's obsessed with typewriters, so I sent him a letter of like, you know, sort of, uh, I did not actually have a manual typewriter myself anymore. I had to go to the library and like, uh, you know, I typed him a letter because like it seemed like the courteous way of, you know, getting a letter on right. his desk and to his attention. And I got a typewritten letter back. And it was very, very nice, um, but was not able to give an interview like for another like year or two. It was like if you could wait a long time, maybe okay. But what he did do, which was great, was um, when I got in touch with other people, and they would go back and check with him. Should I talk to this guy? He always said yes. Okay, that's um, cool. so he knew it was happening. He was cool with it. He cleared other people around him to talk to me. And so I ended up getting just sort of like, uh, you know, sort of like friends from when he was young or like people who had been on shows and movies with him. And they were able to sort of like fill out the texture of who he was. That's great. So you got a big fall ahead. Yeah, we're hoping. Will you tour on these? But you know, do you know Probably New just York, LA, Chicago? Or? Um, uh, I will squeeze things in. Um, uh, the economics of book touring, since we're here, are that um, uh, book uh, publishers have figured out that unless you're Stephen King, it doesn't pay off. Um, that you don't sell enough copies. Uh, at, you know, like if you go to Milwaukee. Uh, you know, like you go to your local Barnes and Noble or uh, whatever, like the big indie bookstores in Milwaukee. You know, you, maybe you sell twenty copies. That's not paying for the plane flight in the hotel room. <laughs> if you can get uh, enough people um, to, uh, if you get local co- uh, press, then that's probably worthwhile. But it's getting harder and harder to do. Right. So it's just sort of like I try to arrange trips. Like, oh, I'm going out to Portland to visit my parents. Let's make a point of, you know, sort of the world's greatest bookstores, Powell's, that's there. Let's go uh, Let's go there. Let's make a point of going to New York and doing what I can. So I always arrange personal travel around the time I have a book coming out and I shoehorn some stuff in. That's great. All right, back to... Uh, question back number to the, four? Yeah, yeah. Yes, question number three. Oh. <laughs> um, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? Um, uh, Battle Without Honor or Humanity. Um, uh, and I... Um, I can't pronounce the, the guy's name at the top of my head, but it's dan dan dan. It's uh, um, it's an old uh, piece of music from uh, Japanese movies, uh, also used in Kill Bill. Okay. <laughs> um, flip side of that is what's stuck on repeat in hell. <laughs> um, I. Uh, a, a train second album, uh, <laughs> which I had to review. And I was just talking about this the other day because uh, uh, my wife was in the next room trying to do her work, and I uh, kept having it on, and it was so hard to concentrate on. I would like sort of like uh, try and play it as background uh, so I can do it and do something else, and I'd get to the end of the album and go, ah, I forgot to pay attention again, <laughs> and I'd put it on again, and I get in like, oh, once again, I did not listen to this album. I was blo-. so I just kept blocking it out over and over and over. And I listened to it many more times than I would have hoped for to write this record review. Oh my gosh! I got to say, poor train. That's the they've they've been the answer to this question twice now. <laughs> I'm sure they're lovely human beings, um, and I have nothing against them personally. But I've already I already trashed the album in print, so it's nothing they don't know that I right. didn't care for. <laughs> so. Okay, number five is what uh, what's the best concert you've witnessed? Wow. Um, I will give you uh, my top two. Um, and one of them was um, seeing uh, Outkast uh, do a uh, one-hour set at Jones Beach as part of uh, the Moby Package Tour, where just they tore it up. <laughs> and they had sort of like two ju- chubby guys like dancing, one on either side of the stage. And it was just, it was incredible. But um, the other one, you know, sort of like 
tied for first uh, was uh, Prince a few years ago did that 21 uh, concert stand at uh, it wasn't the Staples Center it was at the Forum okay uh, he took over um, you know sort of like the previously kind of defunct uh, the home of the Lakers and I was covering opening night and it was an amazing show I had seen him uh, once or twice before and you know he's one of the most gifted showmen I was ever blessed to see but the show finishes you know he's played for I don't know, like hour, uh, three quarters, maybe two hours. Um, and, um, the, you know, sort of does purple rain, there's confetti and, uh, uh, people are leaving and I stay in my seat because I'm just like, well, off chance he might come back and they never bring the lights up. And I see like the people aren't coming down from like, uh, right, the lighting right. guys are not coming down from the rafters and time keeps on going. And I'm like, well, I'm obligated to stay until I know the show is over. And there's like a, 20 minute pause during which about half the crowd leaves and then comes on to four more on course that's awesome um and uh, you know just like and obscurities and the uh, like b-sides like she's always in my hair and sheila e comes out like and does a couple of encores with him and it was very deliberate like yes. we're going to get rid of the people who are just here uh, like to sort of show up and get their card punched and the fans who stick around are going to have this amazing reward. That's awesome. I never heard that story before. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Have you ever? Did you have? Did you ever cover him or do a profile on him? I never did, uh, and uh, you know, sort of wish I had. And now it's too late, obviously. Right. Uh, so, uh, one of my all-time favorites, um, and uh, you know, I just feel lucky I was in the same room as him. Um, that'll lead to my last question. We're we're done with the five, but yeah. um, who would who do who's your white whale? I. For a long time, I tried not to have one because you always like don't interview your heroes; they're mm-hmm. just going to disappoint you. Um, but if I could interview and uh, uh, if I could interview any musician, it would be Bruce Springsteen. That like, uh, and it's somebody who meant a lot to me when I was a kid. It's somebody who you know sort of sustained that meaningfulness like mm-hmm. across the years, and that you know sort of is now something that I share with like my kids, and that you know he's found a way of you know like being an important artist. And I think, in fact. He is a great interview, and everyone says he's just, like, incredibly giving and menschy. And so if I did, if I ever was lucky enough to sit down with him, I feel like, you know, it would go well, and I would not feel like, oh, I've shattered, right. you know, what I've built up across the decades. Have you had a chance to see the Broadway show? I haven't. You know, I'm here in uh, North Carolina now, so it's hard to uh, say, like, I'm going to get the ticket, and I'm going to, like, fly in. up, and, you know, so... <laughs> Well, Gavin, I appreciate you giving me an hour of your time. Uh, Tim, this is such a delight. And thank Ple- you for having me. Pleasure meeting you and talking to you. Absolutely. Take care now. All right. Big thanks to Gavin Edwards. I was pleasantly surprised to find out he lived in my general proximity and glad we could meet up and talk. I had enough notes on him to do three shows, so I'm hoping we could do it all again soon. In the meantime, subscribe to the podcast so you have us waiting for you every Tuesday morning on your device. We'll worm our way into your computer or smartphone next week with an all-new episode, so we look forward to you listening then. That concludes the broadcast of Rockonomics Episode 31 with Gavin Edwards. Good night, Cleveland.